the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. From verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man came to save the lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not lead the ninety and nine on the hills and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Now this evening, if you will turn straightway to Matthew chapter 18, 
we are going to seek to cover this next subsection of the this next subdivision of the third major division in the gospel according to Matthew the realization of the kingdom to be through Calvary alone now we have already um, covered the first three subdivisions the first was the revelation of God's eternal purpose and objective and objective the second was the way to the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose and then last week we um, spent the evening considering the transfiguration of Christ now this evening we come to this fourth subdivision in this um, uh, major division of the gospel according to Matthew it, it is from verse 1 of chapter 18 to verse um, 34 of chapter 20 that is basically the 18th, 19th and 20th chapter of the gospel according to John now I have entitled it characteristics of the kingdom of heaven it is, a, it is an interesting section of the gospel according to Matthew it is the fourth of the five discourses you, you will remember there are five major discourses in the gospel according to, um, to Matthew now this is the fourth we have only one more to uh, consider and that is the one all about the second coming of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 that's a very thrilling a discourse by its very nature this is the fourth of those discourses it is not so easy to find a title for it which really describes its content contents and comprehends its meaning um, you will notice those of you who are really following these studies and getting the maximum out of them that if you look back in your notes you will find when we um, uh, said something about those five major discourses and I think the third study we did um, on this gospel um, we entitled it then the fellowship of the kingdom the fellowship of the kingdom we have dealt if I uh, um, am right with the principles of the kingdom we have dealt with the authority or the power of the kingdom we have dealt with the growth of the kingdom uh, this is all about um, characteristics of the kingdom now I before called it fellowship of the kingdom but in actual fact although it would be quite right to entitle it fellowship of the kingdom there are certain things uh, in the in this section which would not really be described by the word fellowship so it's not really comprehensive enough it certainly would uh, would um, help us greatly in the section in Matthew chapter 18 from 15 to the end of that chapter and it would also help us in one or two other parts of this um, uh, 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 of this uh, section but not the whole then again I thought of entitling it the character of the kingdom the character of the kingdom but even that is not really uh, comprehensive enough 
So I have finally settled on this more general uh, title, Characteristics of uh, the Kingdom. It's interesting to note in this section the emphasis that there is on entry into the kingdom, entering into the kingdom of heaven, or entering into life. Now, if you take um, your Bible, we'll just look at one or two of those references. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. Truly, I'm reading in the, Rev in the Revised Standard Version. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, verse 8. If your hand or your, or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life, maimed or lame. Again, verse 9. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye. Uh, then again, in chapter 19, verse 17, we read this. Why do you ask me about what is good? One there is who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Then verse 23 of the same chapter, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then again, verse 24, Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now, if you turn back to chapter, in this same chapter 19 to verse 14, we read this, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Verse 16, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Now, in this small section, it is quite clear that there is an emphasis on entering into the kingdom of heaven, entering into life, life eternal, um, spiritual life. It is put in other ways, inheriting eternal life, or it is put as who then can be saved, um, or again, to such belongs the kingdom of uh, heaven, having eternal life. What shall I do that I might have eternal life? Nevertheless, in spite of this emphasis, the, this discourse is not concerned with our initial introduction to the salvation of God. Um, it is a puzzling section, this, at a first reading, because at a first and superficial reading, you would think that this section is really all to do with being saved or being born into the kingdom. In other words, our initial introduction to the salvation of God through the grace of God or our initial introduction 
into the kingdom by, by new birth. But in actual fact, that is not so. This discourse is not without initial introduction into the kingdom of God, but with the character and characteristics of the kingdom, and really, in a sense, the, the aim God has. It's a much fuller scope. And when the Lord here in this section talks about entering into life, entering into the kingdom, it must be understood in a fuller way. Um, now, these are not, this is not in the notes, but um, I, I'll um, just give you an example of this. In the book of Revelation, it says, the Lord says, and, I, and, and his part in the tree of life shall be taken away. What does that mean? Why does it say in Revelation, in, one, in the first few chapters, to one of the churches, he shall have right to the tree of life? This is very confusing. <laughs> haven't, haven't, haven't all those who've been saved or are in the church, um, uh, wherever it was, haven't they a right to the tree of life? They're saved. What does it mean? They have right to the tree of life. The word has a greater meaning than an initial right to the tree of life. It means they have a right, as it were, fully to it. Rather like uh, a man has a right to a woman when they're married. They have a right over one another. The, the wife to the husband, the husband to the wife, they have a right to one another. In, a, in, a, in, in an altogether deeper, fuller, uh, more comprehensive way than when engaged. Now, uh, here, you've got the same idea, this word entry into the kingdom, entering into the kingdom, entry into life is not just to be understood only in an initial way, but it is to be understood in a much deeper way. When you get that clear, you will understand much more uh, the, um, about this section, what the meaning of this section is. It is really all to do with the character and characteristics of divine and heavenly kingship. Before us in this discourse is set forth the characteristics of divine kingship. What, not just the character of divine rule, but what is the character and the characteristics of being a king unto God? God wants us to come to the throne, every one of us. He wants us to be those who can have dominion over things, can rule over things, can administer the kingdom which is to come. Now, it's no good just having a lot of babies. Though we're all spiritual babes. We've got to, be, we've got to grow up. We've got to, um, we've got to be educated. We've got to be trained. We've got to be instructed. We've got to be disciplined in order that we might grow up to take responsibility in the government of God. Now, the trouble is that whenever we think of the word kingdom, we always think of it only in the English sense of the territory that's ruled over by God, rather than the government itself. Now, this section is to do with the character and characteristics 
of divine and heavenly kingship. In other words, what is it that God looks for in you and in me that will qualify us to reign? In the book of Revelation, it says, He that overcometh shall sit down with me in my throne. And that means that some don't sit down with him in his throne, if we understand it correctly. It is a conditional thing. If you overcome, you sit down with Christ in his throne. Now, what does that mean? It means that you share in his government. You, you, you share with him and under him in the administration and the government of the kingdom of heaven. Now, God has got to bring us through his grace and by his education and training to the place where we are able to govern. Now, dear child of God, some of us can't even govern ourselves, let alone govern anyone else or anything else. And this is the whole problem. Look at the church. Look at the mess that we're in. Look at the work of God. Look at the mess we're in the work of God. We're like a lot of little babies. Really, uh, it is like one giant nursery. Now, there is a nursery in the things of God, and the right, uh, there's a right phase uh, through which we go. Um, when we're nursed and cared for, we're but babes. But God doesn't want one great giant nursery. And it is a complete misunderstanding of this very section, if we are to understand um, this uh, word about being like children, to understand that we're to remain in the nursery forever. Exactly what God does not mean. We've got to grow up. Now that's why this section is really so important, because it has much for you and for me in this matter of being becoming qualified for God's government. Now if you turn to 2 Peter and chapter 1, 2 Peter and chapter 1 and verse, nine, verse 10, I think it is in some way connected to this. Wherefore, brethren, you re we really ought to read the whole of this chapter, but perhaps you can on your own. Wherefore, brethren, give the more diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do, do these things, ye shall never stumble, for thus shall be richly supplied unto you the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? By, by making our calling and election sure, there shall be richly supplied unto us the entrance, the entrance, not an entrance, but the entrance into the kingdom um, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That, 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 that doesn't mean an initial introduction. There's, some, there's, a, there's a feeling about those words that means more than that. Um, we don't want to, as a Campbell Morgan once said, we don't want to sail into the heavenly harbour battered uh, wrecks. Masts gone, sails torn to ribbons, just simply in. Some people have got the idea that's the way to get into heaven, sort of. Actually go in a battered wreck. You're in, but nothing else. No, he said, we want to go in with full sail, absolutely triumphant, triumphant, 
richly supplied uh, this entrance into the eternal kingdom, richly supplied. So we've gone through more than conquerors. Now God's grace will, would enable every one of us to go through more than conquerors in this matter. Well, now let's actually turn to the section and um, analyze it a little more. <clears throat> if you turn to chapter 18 from verse 1 to 14, I have entitled this Heaven's Estimate of True Greatness. Heaven's Estimate of True Greatness. It's interesting to note that the world's estimate of Greatness is evidently not God's estimate of greatness. Now, what do we generally mean by greatness? We think of great people. Well, <clears throat> sometimes um, some of the great people that the world makes a lot of are not much morally, and sometimes they're not much in any other way either. But they've got power, political power, or military power, um, they are often arrogant people. And it's an understanding in the world that unless a person is arrogant, he's not really great. Um, you've got to assert yourself. You've got to fight for your rights. You've got to be independent and self-sufficient. You've got to punch the other person right on the nose uh, if they sort of punch you. I mean, and most of us recognize such a person. We say, now, now, that's a real man. Now, that's a great person, you see. That kind of person's a fighter. And uh, that person will get somewhere in the world. That's the world's estimate of greatness. Now, what is the Lord's estimate of greatness? Here we have it in these verses. Now, note that it is all to do with greatness. If you uh, read verse 1... The question that provoked this discourse was this, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this is all about spiritual greatness. What is heaven's estimate of true greatness? Are you great? Am I great? Is there anything about us in heaven's estimation that qualifies us for this, for this title, great, true greatness? Well, here we have it. Christ answers in three ways. First, from verse 1 to 6, he tells us, that it is childlikeness that leads to true greatness. Now, not childishness, but childlikeness that leads to true greatness. Now, um, look at the look at the um, uh, verses from one to six again. Uh, for instance, verse three. I say, he put a little child in the midst of them and then said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, verse 4, like this child, and I love the, um, uh, one of the new renderings, I think it's in the New English Bible, which says, 
Whoever humbles himself till he becomes as this child. Whoever humbles himself till he becomes as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then, verse 5, whoever receives one such child, not an actual child, but one who's become such a child, in my name receives me. In other words, this childlikeness of character is Christ. Now, what, do we, what does the Lord mean when he says childlikeness? Does he mean we should remain ignorant? <laughs> Does he mean that we should remain silly? Does he, remain, does he mean that we should remain those with an interest in childish things? Not at all. The rest of Scripture clearly shows us this is not so. We are to grow up. When we become older, we are to put away things uh, that are um, childish. We are to be full grown. What then, what then does the Lord mean? Surely he means that we are to be childlike in the simplicity of our trust. Now you see a little child. Look how there is in that child a simplicity of trust. A child will put its hand into yours and will completely trust you. Now I won't say that a child will do that with anyone. But once the child knows you, that child will put its hand in yours and will implicitly trust you. They will confide in you. They will tell you all kinds of things. It's a simplicity of trust. It's more than just a faith. It's a confidence. As soon as there's any trouble, the child comes and puts his or her hand in yours. They, they hide in you. They, they, they confide in you. They trust in you. you see, there's a simplicity of trust. <clears throat> Surely that's what the Lord means. Become childlike. Now, does, is that in itself spiritual greatness? No. But it leads to spiritual greatness. You see, it is independence of the Lord that leads to stupidity spiritually and littleness spiritually. When we just use our own minds, when we lean on our own understanding, we become little. But when we confide in the Lord with that simplicity of trust and confidence, it leads to spiritual greatness because God is able to touch our eyes and our eyes and our minds and our hearts are open to vistas that we never knew existed before. We see things we never thought existed. So surely this is really what the Lord means in this matter. And also I think it is more. I think that he um, is speaking of the humility of mind which inquires. Now, um, have you ever heard a child asking questions? They ask all kinds of questions. They, they, the humility of mind is such that they'll ask anything in order to find out. Now as soon as we grow up a little, we become self-conscious. In fact, even when we're dying to ask a question, we won't because we're afraid of looking silly. So we never learn. But there is about a child a humility of mind which will inquire and inquire and inquire and inquire in order to learn and learn and learn. And this leads to spiritual greatness. When only we, we will capture this little secret, 
When we don't understand something in the word of God, we get on our knees and say, Now, Lord, show me what this means. Show me what it means. Reveal this thing to me. If only we would inquire of the Lord. You know, the Old Testament, is, especially in the earlier days of the Old Covenant, is full of examples of people who didn't inquire of the Lord. They got into a mess. This childlike spirit of inquiry so simple I'm sure that leads to spiritual greatness we're saved from mistake we're saved from error we're saved from heartache when we inquire childlikeness now all this leads to uh, true greatness and that's why the Lord puts his finger on it and says True greatness in heaven's estimate is a childlikeness of spirit. We could say very much more about that. There is about the child a dependence upon others and much else. But we must leave it. The second thing we find from verse 7 to 9 in chapter 18, and um, we will read just verse 8 and 9. We've already read it. Um, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Single-mindedness. Single-mindedness. Now what did the Lord mean when he said if your hand um, causes you to sin? Um, if your foot causes you to sin, cut the thing off. Well, he didn't mean that we were to actually physically mutilate ourselves. But what he did mean was this. Be absolutely single-minded in your devotion. Absolutely single-minded. Because single-mindedness leads to spiritual greatness. It is compromise that always leads us to spiritual littleness. The more we compromise, the more we lose spiritually. The more single-minded we are and uncompromising we are, the more we are led into spiritual greatness. Therefore, if there is an issue in your life and it is enslaving you or paralyzing you or hindering you, out with it. Don't play with it. Don't sign agreements with it. Don't adjust to it. Cut it off. Just cut it off. What words the Lord used? A hand. A foot. Why? Just think. What did the Lord mean? Only one foot you have to hop along. Only one hand. You, there's a lot you can do with two hands. Not so much with one hand. Only one eye. Think of the impaired vision. These things are necessary. The Lord takes things that we would say are legitimately necessary to our lives. If they cause you to sin, out with it. Out with it. For some people, they cannot touch alcohol. For some people, they mustn't go to a cinema. For some people, they mustn't smoke. For some people, they mustn't go to a theatre. Some people mustn't watch television. Only the Lord can show you this. Other people are legitimate as their eyes, hands, feet. But if that thing causes you to stumble out with it, don't parley with it. Don't sign an alliance with it. Don't make a pact with it. Don't say, well, now the others all do it. The others are okay. They get through. For you, it will cause you to stumble. Out with it. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom never having watched a television program and go in absolutely whole than to watch the thing and it, done, it, it has done something. It's damaged you. 
I'm only using these outward things as examples. Oh, there may be many other things much more deeply rooted in us. Friendships, worldly friendships, yokes, alliances with this world, all kinds of things that lie in the background cause compromise, compromise, compromise. It is the most terrible weapon that the enemy uses in his whole armory. Compromise. Because, you see, we've gone back to childlikeness. You see... There is about compromise something which is very adult, very wise, very, very wise. Oh, you don't have to be extreme. I mean, don't be extreme. Be broad about this thing. Relax, sort of thing. See, I mean, you can't go out of the world. You're living in the world. And, but you see, the fact of the matter in the end comes down to this. If it causes you to sin, Cut it off. And it is an extraordinary thing that the Lord doesn't say, come to me and I'll cut it off. <laughs> Go to the church and get them to cut it off. He says, pluck your eye out. Cut your hand off. Cut your foot off. It's better for you to go into life, enter into life, maimed or lame, or with one eye, than to go into fire. In other words, to be harmed by the second death. Well, there's a lot we could say about this, but uh, a devotion and a completeness of dedication that is prepared to sacrifice anything and everything, whatever the cost, in order to go right through with God, that is single-mindedness. And that single-mindedness leads to true greatness. Now, dear child of God, if you have any question about this, you take some of the spiritual biographies that are up in the library, take them out and read them, and you will find that every truly spiritually great man or woman has been single-minded. They've done the most extraordinary things, especially when they were younger. Extraordinary things. Because they were absolutely prepared to go right through with God, whatever the price, whatever the cost. It leads to spiritual greatness. And I might just add one other thing. In verse 7, it says, Woe to the man that, that is a cause of stumbling. You know, it is this lack of single-mindedness more than anything else that causes stumbling. It's not that Christians are malicious. It is just simply that sometimes we're not single-minded. Because we're not single-minded, we become a stumbling to someone else. Very, very simple. The third thing that leads to spiritual greatness in heaven's estimate is um, contained from verse 10 to 14, and it is what I have entitled a refusal to, dis, uh, a refusal to disregard or overlook or belittle any child of God. Now you might wonder how on earth this has got anything to do with spiritual greatness. A refusal to disregard or overlook or belittle. Now, note in verse 10. See that you do not despise, despise one of these little ones. And the Lord's not talking about physical children. He's talking about those who have become as little children, who have become converted and are converted and become as little children. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, what is it when we despise? Well, we don't actually necessarily criticize. We certainly aren't antagonistic. 
as such openly. We don't actually come against them. But what we do is we belittle them. Or we disregard them. We despise them. Oh, such a so-and-so. <coughs> you know? We despise. And it is the refusal to despise or belittle any child of God that leads to spiritual greatness. You know, some people have entertained angels unawares. Others have said, Poof. Yeah. Well, it's true. If you're an unknown, no one wants to have you in their home. But if you're well-known, you'll be surprised the number of people who prepared. When I first used to go to some countries, uh, it was difficult for them to arrange accommodation. But now they have fights over where I go just because they've got to know. That's all. See, you can easily despise a person when you don't know them. But when once you're known, then everyone wants to have you. Oh, yes, it's prestige sometimes. Someone uh, says, now a home. But you see, it says, um, exercise hospitality, in so doing, some have entertained angels unawares. I've often wondered whether those three that came to, to Abraham were rather grubby. <laughs> One of them lords of the Lord and two of them were angels. But they were so disguised they never recognised them. They may have been very grubby and, grubby and possibly not very beautiful to look at. <coughs> supposing, angels, supposing Abraham had just taken no notice, they would have gone on, he would have missed a tremendous experience. So it is with us sometimes. We, we judge on an outward appearance and, uh, uh, and because of that we've missed an angel. They've gone. Well, this, I think, is more than just a matter of disregarding uh, children um, of God. You see, in verse 11, it goes back to the very character of the Lord Jesus himself. He says, the Son of Man came to save the lost. Verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God cares for every single one. God loves every single one. Now, what the Lord is trying to put his finger on is the mentality which is quite unlike God's mentality. It is a mentality which Despises what God loves and what God saves. Have you ever thought of that? Any time you despise a saved child of God, a, a true believer, you're despising someone that God loves and is saved and honors. This is what this passage means. Not your. It is not your will, the will of your Father in him, that any one of these little ones should perish, as if we were saying to ourselves, hmm. I should let them perish. They're not worth the trouble. They're honestly not worth the trouble. Wash our hands of them. But it is not your, the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should uh, perish. And I think if there's more in it than even that, I think it sets aside um, uh, the very character God commends. And secretly... It um, believes in the world's estimate of greatness. In other words, when we see someone who doesn't seem to be much, uh, we, uh, we, we, um, we more easily can despise them. 
If they were more like the world's idea of greatness, we would bow and scrape and say, well, now, please, we'll do anything for you we can. Do you see what I mean? Well, the greatness of character, spiritual greatness, is a characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. It is evidence of the kingdom being present. Now, this is true, whether it's in a person or in a company. Whenever there is spiritual greatness or greatness of character in a person or in a company, it is because the kingdom is present. In other words, the educating work of God by the Spirit is going on in that person or in that company. And spiritual greatness is the result. You've only got to look at church history and see the spiritual greatness of character that has been in great suffering, under persecution, in martyrdom and much else, produced by God through the Spirit. It is evidence that the kingdom was present. Because it is a characteristic of the kingdom. God is not interested in petty-minded bureaucrats. And people have got the idea that God's going to have some great big divine civil service peopled with a red tape bureaucracy all little minds that are all reading in a book and say now then um, this is the regulation point one point two point three point four pull this lever and that lever and you do this and here's the ticket you know that kind of littleness of mind that uh, that uh, god's not like that the kingdom of God is not going to be some vast system of bureaucracy by little rubber stamp personalities that can't think and are not original at all. God's kingdom is going to be peopled with men and women who are qualified to administer the kingdom, qualified to govern, because they have come to spiritual greatness of character by the education of God. I think that's important for us to understand. Well, now we pass on, we must pass on to the next section from chap, from chap, in chapter 18, from verse 15 to verse 35. And in this section, I have called it the unity of believers, its nature and preservation. Now, in this passage, it is the unity of God's people, their relationship to Christ and therefore to one another, that is set forth. This oneness, this relationship, and the way we maintain it is a characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. The characteristic of the presence of the kingdom is unity. And a spirit which will maintain the unity at all costs, whatever happens. Now, if you take again your Bible we read in Matthew chapter in, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 we read and I tell you you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the powers of the, the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it now there in that uh, chapter, we have the church of God, universal, eternal, timeless, invisible, set before us. It is the redeemed of God from all time. It is that church of God which is the bride of Christ which the Lord Jesus himself is building. Now in chapter 18, 
and verse 17, we read this. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now it is interesting, this is the second time the word church is used in the New Testament. The first is in Matthew 16 verse 18, and the second is in Matthew chapter 18 verse 17. Now in the first we have the church of God, which is the universal, the universal side, the universal, timeless, eternal. In this verse we have the church that church expressed in time, in place, on earth, through believers in a given locality. Now that's very, very important to understand that. Because there are some people who believe in a wonderful church all up there, and uh, anything else can happen down here. You can contradict any principle you wish in the church, invisible, universal, and eternal, in the church that is down here. They say, ah, now that's organic, this is organized. Up there it's pure, this is, uh, there's a lot that's impure. Up there it's all um, complete, down here it's all being done, and so it goes on and on. This great sort of difference between the two things. But in actual fact, the church on earth, in time, in a given locality, is supposed to be that church expressed in time. Now, of course, we may fall far short of that, but that's God's um, aim, that there should be an expression of the church in time, in locality, through people on earth. Here we are. We are meant in this town of Richmond to be an expression of the church of God here. Now that leads to some very important points that I want to make. The first is this, that the authority of God himself, the authority of the kingdom of heaven is vested in that church expressed on earth. Now we all know that the Lord said in Matthew chapter 16 verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Few people recognize that exactly the same words are said to the church expressed on earth. Listen, verse 18 of chapter 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, that church expressed in time in a given locality through weak believers there is to, is to exercise all the authority of God himself. It is at their disposal. The very, the very authority of God himself, the very keys of the kingdom of heaven, the very, the very authority of the kingship, the throne of heaven, is at their disposal. All they've got to do is exercise it. Now take a further step, and in verse uh, um, 19 of this chapter we read that they have not only authority uh, to act, and heaven acts with them, it ratifies what they do, but they have, they have the right of executive power. That church on earth has executive power. What do I mean? It has power to execute the will and word of God. 
So then when that little weak company of believers can find out what is the mind of God in any given situation, they have within their power by the Spirit the power to execute that will. In other words, the will of God will never be realized while we sit down and say, Lord, please do it, please do it, please do it. It is only done when we say, Lord, in thy name we come together and we say this thing is done. We go forward. We go forward as if it's done. When that happens, it's executive action. In other words, an executive is someone who has the power to sign something in the name of a firm or a company, and it's done. The thing goes right through. Without his signature, it cannot pass through. It cannot, it cannot be executed. With the executive signature, it can go through. So it is with us. We as the church on earth, the expression of that church here on earth, in time, in a locality, have executive power in our hands to take the will of God. Not our will, but the will of God, the purpose of God, the mind of God, and execute it in any given situation. That's why the Lord said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. In other words, once the devil knows that there's a possibility of such executive action being, being, being exercised, he will do everything in his power to prevail against them. Everything. But those, that church is invincible when it hides in Christ. The unity of the believers, it's not just a question of the sentimental unity of all it is nice all to be one. It is nice that we don't have any sort of trouble amongst us. Ah, it's not that kind of thing at all. The twittering birds, lovely sunsets, it's not that kind of unity. It's the kind of unity that in the midst of a tremendous storm and tested on every side, knows how to overcome all the insinuations and devices of, of the devil with, with weapons of our warfare which are not carnal, but which can pull down strongholds of Satan. Now, that's what is here. It is very interesting that in this matter of executive power, listen to the way the Lord puts it. I again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth as touching about anything they shall ask, it will be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Now, um, you know the word is, uh, if they are harmonized together, if they harmonize together, or the Amplified puts it, if, they make a, if together they make a symphony exact word. If together they make a symphony. Now that doesn't mean that I say to Ron, now Ron, let's drop, us our, drop our differences and let us agree on this thing. That is not the way heaven does it. It is rather this. Ron says, I feel, or someone else says, I feel this is the way, and I say that straight, I feel exactly the same, I'm with you. They, we together make a symphony. <laughs> it's not very often but still you see what happens together we make a symphony we all say amen amen it's not that we're all sort of saying that it says in the word if you agree so I don't really agree but I'll agree just so that we can get this done that won't get anywhere with God he sees into the heart it's when we are really together on a thing in spirit we are symphonized we're harmonized then when that happens, executive action can be taken. So, dear friend, you do understand why the enemy is out to wreck any unity. 
He can paralyse everything by just getting us all at sixes and sevens so that really and truthfully we just don't feel we can be together. Or we feel in this silly, very silly and puerile way that, well now, perhaps we ought to agree. Otherwise we won't get anything done. That's not the point. The point that we've got to tackle of all those dark insinuations that the enemy uses. Why is it that he floods in with these things? Why does he sow these seeds of mistrust and doubt? Why does he get us to do these things which mar relationships? Just so that he can sow all those, all that discord, so that whenever a big matter comes up, we're all on different sides of the fence. Temperamentally. It's not really spiritually. We all try to make it sound as if it's spiritual. It's not spiritual. It's temperamental, very much of it. We play things of the enemy. We don't understand. We think we're wrestling against flesh and blood. And so we get all this talk, so-and-so. You know so-and-so's the fly in the ointment. Or if so-and-so would only change, it would make such a difference. Or this kind of thing, or that kind of thing. You know, we've all got our scapegoats, haven't we? Husbands, wives, children, parents, the church. How often we say, oh, it's the company. They're all wrong. <laughs> They're all wrong. Or it's the leaders. I've never met such a set. <laughs> What's wrong with them all? Or it's brother so-and-so, or it's sister so-and-so. We've all got scapegoats, yet the word of God says very simply, and profoundly. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against world rulers of darkness, against hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenlands. You see, it's uh, this flesh and blood element that gets us every time. Well, we mustn't stop there, but you see how important it is. Now, all this relationship of the people of God, their unity, their oneness, this authority, this executive power stems from their union with Christ. It is not something God has bestowed upon us, apart from him. It is something given to us in Christ. So that when he is in the midst, and we are in him and he is in us, it's present. But if we are divorced from Christ, there is no power, there is no executive power, there is no authority, there is no relationship. Hold fast the head from whom all the body fitly fades and knit together through that which every joint supplies increases with the increase of God. It is Christ who is the key to everything. So it is not just a question of trying to work ourselves up into a frenzy and saying, now we're going to take action. The devil will laugh himself hoarse. Look at them all. Poor things. Poor things. It is a question that we see who is the source of our authority, who is the source of our relationship, the source of our unity, and hide in him and get rightly related to him. We can't even get that right by trying to get related to one another. That can get us into a mess on the horizontal. We hold fast the head and we find the body. Again and again and again. Well, now, you've got it here again in chapter, this chapter in verse 20. For 
Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Now this little verse is torn out of its context and used for all kinds of variety of meeting, uh, variety of means, you know. Well, Lord, we're two or three gathered in thy name, and you're in our midst. It's true. But it didn't really mean that. The Lord, in its context, was saying, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. The minimum for the church to be expressed is two. Now, it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? You can't have deacons, elders, all that organization with only two people. Unless you make one an elder and the other a deacon and have no congregation. True is the minimum for the expression of the church. For where two or three are gathered, true in one locality, on, on the ground of Christ, church ground as we call it, can exercise their authority in him. If two of you are harmonized, oh, what power there is in the church of God. And yet we, we, we're ignorant to it. We, we think that unless there must be at least two or three hundred of us gathered together, or at least fifty or sixty or something like that, there is no power. But it says where two or three are gathered together, not in a loose gathering, but as the church. Or where two, four, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Now what is this? The believers are in him, he is in them. They are gathered in his name. He is in the midst. It doesn't just mean that he is in the midst and not in them, but he is in them, in the midst of them. They are members of his body, you see. I mean, think of it, gathered into his name. What does it mean? My body shares my name, the name of my head. And so literally it is gathered into his name. This does not just mean a meeting as such, although obviously it has that uh, idea in its outworking, its practical outworking. The church, the ecclesia, are those who are called out or gathered out of the nations into Christ. So if in a locality there are only two or three, there they are, they've been called out, gathered out of that town, out of that nation, of those people, and they have been gathered into the name of the Lord. Now, when you see that, you recognize the tremendous nature of the unity which is ours in him. We are in him, he is in us. Therefore, we have this authority. Whatsoever ye bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. For where two, if, for if two of you shall be harmonized together in anything that they shall ask. Of my Father which is in it shall be done for them, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, gathered into my name, there am I in the midst. Isn't that terrific? Now, it is because we are all in the one Christ, and the one Christ is in all of us, because we have become members of Christ, because of that, we are members of one another. All of us in this room are in the one Christ. The one Christ is in all of us. So what's happened? We're all related to one another. We have only one Christ, and he's in every one of us. And we are in him. So we are now related. We are not only members of Christ, but members of each other. Now, when you think of it like that, when you start to think of it in this way, you understand what the Lord is trying to get at in this section. He's really saying division on any level is sin 
against the very nature of God's work. It is as simple as that. It, it contradicts the oneness of Christ, the fellowship of Christ, and the character of the kingdom. Now that is why the Lord takes this time in this chapter to enforce this lesson. Perhaps as you read it you couldn't understand why. Why does he say all this, if your brother sin against you, go to him. And then Peter says, shall I get forgiven seven times? And the Lord says, seventy times seven you shall um, uh, forgive him. What is seventy times seven? Four hundred and ninety times. Have you ever forgiven anyone four hundred and ninety times? I haven't. 490 times, the same person. Same person. And it means enough to exhaust anyone, isn't it? 400. It's just beyond the power of a human being. You've got to have divine grace and divine love to be able to do that. 490 times. There's only one person that's done that to me, and that's the Lord Jesus. And he's done it more than those times. Forgiven. Seven times? Peter was almost saying seven times? Lord, I mean, after seven times, that's the finish, isn't it? 490 times we are to forgive. Seventy times seven. Now, why was the Lord saying this? Because division is, in his estimation, sin against the very nature of his work. Now, if you look you will see that this, having said all that about the nature of our unity and its preservation, you will now understand this passage from 15, from verse 15 to verse 35. Because in actual fact, it is the breakdown in personal relationships that is being dealt with here. The practical relationships between us and their breakdown. Now, will you note one or two things? First of all, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say, um, uh, if you see your brother sin, you go and have it out. Go and tell him what you think. It says, if your brother has done you wrong, you go to him. Now, isn't that interesting? In other words, so sensitive are we to be about this matter of the unity of Christ that we mustn't leave it. So rather than you sort of saying, well, of course, I'm the wronged party, so I'll wait till he wakes up or she wakes up and comes to me. It says rather, if someone does something against you, you go to them and get it right. Don't leave the thing. Go and get it put right. Now, it is very interesting, the simple procedure that uh, we're told to adopt. First go alone. You and he alone. If he won't listen to you, take one or two witnesses with you. That's one or two known to both. Go with them and see if it can be sorted out. There's great wisdom in this because people always say they never said the things. Let it be established, it says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses because afterwards always in these things people say, well, I never said that. And then it says if they were to listen to the to you again, take it to the church. It doesn't mean that you stand up in a, in a gathering in the church and say, listen everybody, um, so-and-so's done this and I've gone so It doesn't mean that. It means you go to the elders as representing the church. You lay the whole matter before the elders of the church and say, I have sought to put this matter right 
and, and, and so-and-so won't listen to me, won't have anything to do with me about it, what can I do? Then the matter is taken up. If the person is in the wrong and they will not put right, then they are to be treated just like an unsaved person, not given the privileges of uh, being a member of the family of God at all. Now, it's as simple as that, a very simple procedure. Now also if you look at verse 21 you will see that the same matter is taken up again. Peter came up having heard this and said to the Lord as only Peter could Lord how often shall my brother sin against me? In other words you see the Lord said if your brother sin against you go. Well, Peter said do I have to do it seven times? I've got to go to him seven times and put it right. And look what the Lord says 490 times. <laughs> 400 persevere it's the same old lesson all over again persevere with the children of God don't just give them up don't wash your hands of them persevere with them you see then comes a wonderful parable the parable that we call the parable of the unjust steward and um, really the lesson of this parable is if we have been forgiven uh, so much we must also forgive. Now it is interesting that the Lord in his own way um, used uh, remarkable sums. Uh, really he said, you see there was a man who was a steward in a um, quite wealthy, very wealthy home and um, he owed his uh, employer, he owed his master four million pounds. Four million pounds. <coughs> Approximately the sum he owed. And um, uh, his master said he, could, he couldn't pay, so his master said that his wife and children, as was the custom in those days, were to be sold into slavery, and the man was to be put into prison until he paid back what he owed. The man got on his knees and he said, Lord, have patience with me. Please don't let it happen to my family and to me. I will pay you back everything. The master's heart was so touched, he said, very well, I won't do it. I will forgive you and let you off. Now the man went out and on the way out, back, back home to tell his wife the good news, he met um, another slave, very much a much lower paid down in the scale in the master's home and he got hold of him and he said you owe me seven pounds where is it? and the man said oh I'm sorry I haven't got it then he said I shall put you in prison the man got his he said oh be patient with me do be patient I'll pay you back everything and uh, uh, the servant the steward said no I won't he took him straight away along to the prison and had him locked up the other servants who had heard it were so horrified, as Phillips puts it, that they went straight to the master and said, do you know what has happened? And the master called the steward in and said, how is it that I who have forgiven you so much, how is it that you could not forgive him? And with that he had him put in prison. Now that's the story. Now you know, in, a, in, in its own vivid way, it, it's meant to teach us a lesson. You and I have been forgiven so much. Who are we to say we can't forgive? When we have been forgiven so much, it must be when we say we, we, we cannot forgive, it must be that we've forgotten, we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. Otherwise, if we were conscious of, of the debt that has been cancelled in our lives, then we would forgive anyone 
Now, so strong is the Lord's point in this matter that if you turn back to Matthew chapter uh, 6, verse 12, in the prayer that the Lord gave us as a pattern prayer, he said, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do you realize that he taught us to pray, Lord, forgive me as. I have forgiven so and so. I wonder whether that's ever sunk in. When we pray this prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them the trespasses. Do you know what we're really saying to the Lord? Don't forgive me, Lord, if I haven't forgiven. Now, how, does that mean that there's a lot of unforgiven sin in our lives? Because virtually the Lord is simply saying, well, you've said more or less, don't forgive you. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Now, to enforce this, the only thing the Lord took out of his pattern prayer to emphasize was this point. And in verse 14, he puts it like this. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Those are very, very solemn words. When you think about it, very, very solemn words indeed. Well, we haven't got so very far this evening, but we'll stop there. That's the nature of our, of our unity. And that is the reason why, at all costs, we must preserve it. How can it be preserved? It has to be preserved by an understanding and a recognition that our unity is Christ himself and that we must not allow it to be destroyed. And we must seek the law for grace that in the way he has forgiven us, we also shall forgive others. Now, of course, when the practical situation comes up, it's not as easy as that. And all we can do is ask the Lord at that time to make us somehow realize how much we've been forgiven. And when that dawns on us, we are able to forgive others. May the Lord help us then in this matter. Shall we pray together? <coughs> Now, dear Lord, we commit this time into thy hands. We do thank thee, Lord, for thy faithfulness and thy love to us. Do we pray together that thou wouldst, Lord, grant that we may be by thy Spirit qualified through thy instruction of us, thy disciplining of us, qualified, Lord, to sit with thee in thy throne in the kingdom which is to come. Lord, we commit then ourselves to thee in thine own precious name. Amen. Amen.